following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This, but uh, to, to get the context, we need to remind ourselves of the, the story that led about Jesus telling this parable. And let me read from Luke chapter 15, verse 1. The kind of the backstory. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told this parable. Uh, to paraphrase in my own words, the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, what is wrong with you? You are eating with the worst kind of people. You are welcoming them and fellowshipping with the worst kind of people. Jesus there must be something defective about you, both as a person, but especially as a rabbi, right? Because you just don't do that. Um, what, what kind of you know, confused person are you that you would do this? So Jesus tells this parable to respond to their grumbling, to their really accusations that there's something wrong with Jesus. Uh, and it goes like this. At first, we know the first story is about a shepherd who loses uh, a sheep. Okay, now his loss, if, you do, if you're a mathematician, which I'm not, it's dangerous when I do this, but I think I got the numbers right. Uh, he lost one sheep out of 100. So what's the percentage of his loss? 1%, right? 1%. So not a huge loss, very, quite small, but nonetheless, he's determined to find the sheep. He searches hard for it. He goes out. He finds the sheep. And when he finds it, he is filled with joy. He is super excited, even though it's only been a 1% loss to recover that 1% was worth celebrating. Uh, and he comes back home with the, with the sheep, and he is so excited that he invites his friends. It's a joy that is bursting that he must share with others. He doesn't want to just celebrate this by himself. He wants to hold a party uh, to celebrate what he has found with friends and family. Um, and it says, Jesus summarized it this way, So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need repentance. So second story, a woman loses a coin, one of ten. Okay, so what's the percentage now? Ten percent, right? You guys are good, good with math. I'm impressed. Ten percent, right? So it was up the stakes a little more, right? Uh, she tears her house apart to find it. And same thing, when she finds the coin, she's not just a little happy. She's overfilled with joy, so much so that she needs to share that joy with others. And so she calls her neighbors and she uh, has a party. She wants to celebrate with them uh, the good news that she has found her lost coin. And again, Jesus summarizes it this way. So I tell you, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then we come to the third story. The third story is obviously much longer, much more involved, but it really tells the exact same story. Uh, and uh, we call it, we call it the, the, the parable of the lost sons, because we know that in the end both sons are really lost. But, but back up just a little bit with me, and uh, let's look at the story as Jesus uh, hears what have first heard it. And really for them, the lost person, as they first hear this story before unpacking it all, it's really to them a story about one lost son, right, the prodigal. And uh, as the Pharisees and others are listening to this story, uh, the attention is on this prodigal son who is lost. Uh, 
and we know the elder brother comes in later, but the initial story is that uh, this, this young man uh, asks for his inheritance. He blows it. He goes away. He runs away from home, essentially. He goes as far from his father as he can, and he gets in all kinds of trouble, and uh, uh, the son is lost. But we know because uh, losing sons is not like losing a coin. It's not a, just a matter for the father to go find him. But it's much more complicated and complex than that. It's a lost relationship. And so the father has to patiently wait for uh, circumstances to bring back his son. And uh, he does that. The son uh, runs out of luck, so to speak, runs out of money, actually. Um, hits the end of the road, hits the bottom of the barrel. And it says that he comes to his senses. And he does what the other two parables talk about. He repents. Right? He comes to his senses. He says, I am not worthy to be a son. I have sinned against God and against my father, but I am in desperate need of help. So I will go home and I will throw myself, not as a son on my father's mercy, but just as a human being, and I will see if my father will hire me as a slave. Right? And, of course, he goes home and the father uh, is, is extremely joyous. And he receives him back as a son. And we've got to kind of get back to the math. We, I didn't forget the math equation here, okay? The father had two sons. So uh, how great is his loss? 50%? Okay, shame on you. Shame on you, right? Because you can't put percentage values on human life, okay? <laughs> See, I tricked you. I tricked you, right? That's kind of the point of the story, part of the point of it all. Right? Is, is, is he really only worth 50%, right? Well, no, because this loss, when you lose a child, right, it's not a percentage anymore. When you lose a child, it is, it is the most devastating and complete loss a parent can experience, right? It's not just, well, you know, I got another son, so uh, if he comes back. No, no, no. I mean, this is losing a son, right? So when, when this son comes back, what is the extent of the father's joy, right? If the shepherd could get excited about one dumb sheep and the woman could get excited about uh, a coin that represented maybe 10% of her assets, how much more joy and celebration would be due and would be expected from a father who's received back a son? Well, it's, it's far beyond percentages, right? This is not just recovering 50% of a loss. This is recovering a son, right? And so the father is, is overjoyed, and he cannot help but celebrate. And he throws this party, and he kills the fatted calf, and he longs that everybody would, uh, would celebrate with him, would join in his joy. The father says, bring the best robe and put on him, and kill the fatted calf, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Um, so the point Jesus is making is clearly is, is simply this. When someone loses something of value, they will search for it, and when it is found, they are naturally filled with great joy. And the more valuable the item, the greater the joy. In this case, um, uh, you know, the sun is the pinnacle of celebration because of what was lost and what is found. Uh, so those are the three stories, and they kind of line up that way. And if Jesus stopped right there, uh, we would teach about the joy of recovering what is lost. 
but Jesus has not got yet to the punchline, right? The punchline comes after, really, he tells the three parables, and he adds this extra element to the last story that is the punchline. And we know it's about the elder brother. And it really is the most unexpected element. Uh, it says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, the servant said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Right? Now what would we, after all we've just learned about these stories, without knowing the end, we know the end, but what would we expect the older son to do? What would we naturally expect his response to be? Joy, right? Yay! My brother has come home. That is really good news. And I cannot wait to celebrate, to hug my brother, and to join in my father's joy. Right? But here's the twist in the story. Is he happy? No. He was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. See, that's the real unexpected element in the story. And sometimes people uh, try to see the prodigal's request for his inheritance as the twist in the story. But honestly, this is not that much of a twist. Uh, because it's not that unexpected that sons would be rebellious and kind of stupid. Right? <laughs> right? Especially teenage sons or young adult sons, right? Or whatever. Um, there's nothing surprising about this. That sons could be selfish and could... Uh, abuse a father's love, right? That's not that unexpected, right? It's not very nice, but it's not unexpected. But that a son would be incapable of celebrating such an inherently joyful event, okay, that's unexpected. Right? That's unexpected. It's shocking. And, and if you look at it kind of for the first time and you see this story and you see this older son, refusing to go in, pouting and sulking and being angry. All we can say about this guy is, this guy is defective, right? There is something wrong with this person, right? Uh, to put it kind of in a more modern parable, imagine that, um, you know, you are a professional athlete and your team, pick your sport, whatever you want it to be, but make it a team sport, okay, not tennis. Team sport, right? And uh, you go all the way to the world championship, and your team wins the world championship. And you, you know, score the winning goal, and, you know, the crowds go crazy, and the team goes crazy, and the bench empties, and everybody's out on the field having a party celebrating. But your, uh, one of your teammates with his jersey and everything is sitting on the be bench sulking because he only got to play 10 minutes during the game, Right. And he didn't get to be the star of the show. And so he's sitting on the bench sulking, even though you just won the national champ, you know, world championship, right? You would say, this guy is defective. There's something wrong with somebody who could be so selfish that they cannot share in the joy of winning, right? Uh, so so this, is, this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, the, the Pharisees said to Jesus, Jesus, what's wrong with you that you would eat with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus tells this parable that says, well, basically, guys, I'm fine. What's wrong with you? Right? What's wrong with you that you cannot celebrate the joy of a repentant sinner coming home? I'm not the defective one here. You are. Right? 
course, he says it in ways that are much more politically correct and kind. But in essence, that is exactly what this parable is about. Jesus is saying, what kind of defective person is this elder son? There's something wrong with him. Right? And uh, he, by implication, Pharisees, there's something wrong with you. Right? I'm, okay. I'm, I'm doing what's natural and normal. You're the ones that are missing something because you refuse to enter into the joy of heaven. You cannot participate in the joy of heaven. Um, so that's, that's, that's what this parable ultimately is about, right? And that's kind of putting it all back together in one piece, and that's the message that Jesus is giving there. Uh, but in that, Jesus really helps us see what's defective about them. If we took a, take a little bit closer look, and some of this we've talked about, we'll just touch on it briefly. What was it about these guys that was so defective? What was it about the way they understood their theology, uh, their, understood their, uh, their picture of who God was and how they related to him, that caused them to have a defective faith and a defective religion? Well, there are several things. Let's just highlight them real briefly. First one is that they were oblivious about grace. They did not, not, not understand or value that God was ultimately a God of grace. Uh, notice what it says in verse 30. Uh, the elder brother says, When this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. What, what's that statement all about? Well, it's easy. This worthless son of yours does not deserve this kind of treatment. Right? The, the elder brother understands nothing of grace. Uh, he understands a good deal about the holiness and righteousness and perhaps even something of the love of God. But he has no idea the extent of what God's love is like. That God's love is a love that's so unconditional, so extreme, so over the top, that God can extend that love to people who least deserve it. He had no clue about that, no idea. The Pharisees could not comprehend that. They believed that they merited or deserved or were worthy of God's love, and they couldn't conceive how God could give his love and kindness as a means of grace, right? as a means of giving what is absolutely not deserved, as giving freely what somebody has disqualified themselves from. So they don't understand grace. And... Uh, this is the fundamental issue of why they cannot understand Jesus' core message, the gospel. Right? Uh, they do not get the gospel. And the reason they don't get it is because the gospel is built on the foundation of grace. Right? We are sinners. Jesus has died for us. And through his death, he has given us life that we do not deserve. It is unmerited. It's over the top. Well, they cannot accept this message. And that's the fundamental failure of the understanding of the Pharisees. Second thing, uh, they are ignorant about their relationship with God as their father. Right? They do not conceive of their relationship with God in terms of a father-son or father-child relationship. Notice what Jesus says, uh, or what the young man says. He answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never once gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. How did this 
elder brother conceive of his relationship with the father? Was it a father-son relationship or was it more of an employer-employee relationship? Well, I really think he understood his relationship primarily as an employer. Right? How does an employer-employee relationship work? Well, an employer-employee relationship, you work, you do some job, you do some task, and if you do it well and are successful, the boss owes you something. Right? It is his duty to pay you. Well, that's kind of how the son conceived of his relationship here. He says, I've served you, I've labored for you, I've been working for you, and you owe me a goat. Right? You owe me a party. Right? Uh, that was how he understood his relationship. Uh, you know, we can, ex- speaking of sports, I'm sorry about all the sports metaphors, but <clears throat> it just happens to work this morning. Uh, we, we complain a lot about the huge amounts of money that professional athletes get paid, Right? millions of dollars just to bounce a, a, a round ball or kick a ball or catch a ball or, you know, jump or something, right? And uh, it just seems ridiculous that they would get these millions and millions of dollars to do that. But, but here's the simple truth, okay? They may only be, you know, playing with the ball, but they can do things with that ball that none of you can, all right? None of you could pretend to, right? Um, they can jump and do things at speeds and with skill and ability that, you know, maybe in your dreams you could do, right? But the reality is you're not playing professional sports for a reason. And it's not just because it was a career choice, right? Whatever you tell yourself otherwise, right? Um, we're just not that good, right? They, they have gifts that are beyond what the average human being has. And that's why they get paid so much, right? And we wish we could, you know, jump 14 feet in the air and slam a basketball after we've, you know, wrapped it around our body three times. Um, so, and, and here's the, the good deal. And they do that superhuman stuff and they win championships. Their bosses are very happy with them and they are glad to give them huge amounts of money because they've earned their pay, right? No matter how ridiculous their pay is, they've earned it, right? Uh, but a child-parent relationship is extremely different. Right? Uh, a child has value for very different reasons. Right? Uh, none of us, praise God, come into the world as babies right? with our parents evaluating our, our abilities. Right? Uh, like, you know, when we're a month old, thank, praise God, they can't, like, instantly determine our IQ. And our parents go, you know, I can see this kid's not going to make it very far can I give him back? (laughs) That's not a parent-child relationship, is it? Uh, Good fathers have an inexplicable affection and compassion for another human being who's their child simply because of the relationship they have with them. In other words, simply because they occupy the place of nearest possible relationship to us. And a child is closer to us even than a spouse. Okay, we're, the Bible says we're to become one with, become one flesh with our, our spouse, right? And so we, we do that. We leave our parents and we come and we become one flesh. But a child is even closer because they already are one flesh. They bear our image. They are in many ways, you know, they carry our DNA. They are like us. And just because of that nearness of relationship, we value them. We love and cherish them. We, uh, especially if we are good parents, um, that child becomes one of infinite worth to us. 
infinite worth to us. And we will do anything just because they're our child. Last night, we had the daddy-daughter dance. Anybody, any of you guys go? Some of you guys were there. I saw you. Right? And this is living proof of what fathers will do for their children. Right? Because there were a few people there who could dance. The rest of us just were really good at making fools of ourselves. Right? I being one of those. Right? But, you know, when you do it for your daughter, you, you'll make the biggest fool ever. Right? Because you care about your, your daughter. Right? Because she's worth it. Right? And there's nothing they do that merits it. You don't do it because, well, you know, if you get an A on your test, I'll go to the daddy. No, it doesn't work that way. We just go and we make total fools out of ourselves uh, because our kids are worth it, right? A perfect father's love has no conditions. It cannot be earned or merited or increased. It is not in any way dependent on our child's loyalty. Okay, that's not what a father-child relationship works. Um, God is a God of infinite grace. But how much more is that grace poured out to a child, right? To a child. Even we as human beings can get this. We may not be able to give grace to enemies like God does, but we can certainly give grace to our children, right? How much more can God do that, right? Well, the Pharisees did not understand that, right? Their relationship with God was not based as a child-parent relationship. It was a contract of labor earning uh, what was due them. Right? Third thing, they were confused. The Pharisees, uh, the elder brother, was confused about being worthy. And it kind of ties back into this whole idea of, of father-son relationship. Uh, but it has this idea that as a son we can be worthy. And it's interesting, the prodigal, remember when he hits the bottom of the barrel... And he comes to his senses. Remember what he said. He said, um, look, these many years I have served you. I'm sorry, wrong one. Uh, confused about worth. Well, I can't find it. But the son says, I am not worthy to be your son. Right? I am not worthy of sonship. Um, the elder brother has the opposite, opposite problem. Right? He thinks he's too worthy of being a son. He's a guy who labored and worked for you. I'm totally worthy. Right? And here's the thing. If you're talking about a father-son relationship, is worthiness a factor? Right? Is worthiness a factor? No, it is not. They misunderstood what it meant to be a son, that being son is not based on our worthiness. And the truth is they both were unworthy. Right? They both were unworthy. There was nothing in them that merited... Um, the, the worthiness of having this kind of father. Um, and the reality is that worth is not assigned by performance. True worth, true value in a father-son relationship, father-child relationship, true worth comes just externally because of the value the parent puts on the child. Uh, here's, a, here's an example. Many of you may not know this, but I'm actually an art collector. And uh, I know it looks, seems kind of shocking because I'm not very artistic, but I love collecting art. And I have some, actually some very extraordinary pieces of art in my home. They are, and they are prominently displayed throughout our house. And if you come, you'll see these uh, really quite priceless pieces of art. In fact, my art collection is so valuable that I cannot get it insured. Right? It's just beyond, it's, it's, it's so valuable, it's beyond, it's beyond counting its cost and its worth, right? 
And you may wonder how a poor missionary preacher like me could come to have such extraordinary pieces of art in my home. Some of you know the answer already, right? Well, these pieces of work were painted all by my children, right? And the sculptures were sculptured by my my children. And um, you may not think they're worth anything, right? And actually, if I were to try to sell them, I don't know that anybody would think they're worth that much. Um, But to me, they are priceless, right? I decide the worth of those because of what they mean to me because my children created them and gave them to me, right? So it is with a parent's love for their children, right? The parent decides and ascribes worth to that child, not based on their worthiness, but based simply on the parent's love for children. Uh, Neither brother really got that, right? And probably we don't either. Uh, Do we really have any idea how much worth and value we have in God's eyes, Worth not because we are worthy, but because God so values us. Because God so values us. We are priceless to him. Last uh, flaw, last problem that the um, Pharisees had, that the elder brother has, is they are clueless about joy. Clueless about joy. Uh, Again, in 1531, the father says to his elder son, Son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. Uh, The irony in this whole story, the great irony in this whole story, is this older brother, older son, is laboring, killing himself, trying to earn what already belongs to him. It's almost, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be quite funny. Here's this guy killing himself to get one lousy goat. And the dad says, "Uh, hello. You own it all, right? It's all yours. Why are you trying to earn a goat, right? Everything I have already belongs to you. But here's the catch. Uh, It may all belong to him, um, and you cannot earn what already belongs to you, but you can fail to enjoy what's already in your possession. You can fail to enjoy what's already in your possession. And that was very much the case with the son, uh, it was his, but he couldn't enjoy it. He couldn't enjoy one goat. Right? He couldn't enjoy one crumb of the festivities that his father had for him. Well, why? Well, because of his failure to understand grace and to relate to his father as a father, to realize what he possessed as a son. And ultimately, because he was consumed by selfishness, right? He could not see past his own selfish life to share in the joy of his father, to value his brother who he should have loved, right? The great enemy of joy is selfishness. And I would say also that the great proof of a defective faith, the proof of a defective religion is a religion without joy. It's a life without joy. Uh, When you consider all the religions of the world, right, Religions kill joy. And I don't have time to go. You're going to have to just do the study on your own. Think about it on your own. But every religion obliterates joy. Right? Uh, but Jesus offers something different. Well, certainly Judaism did. And certainly these guys were great killjoys, as, as uh, their grumbling brings out. Well, real quickly, what's the cure? Well, the cure is easy. 
Uh, and the reality is that as Christians, there is risk to us to be just like the Pharisees. And the risk is this, that for some crazy reason, as easy as grace is, um, working for salvation is easier. Right? Because of our pride, because of our stubbornness, because of our selfishness, receiving grace is somehow always harder than working to earn something. And it's so easy to turn our Christian faith into works, into earning God's love, into being worthy of him as a son, as a child, as a daughter, right? So how do we combat it? Well, it's real simple. First thing, uh, they failed in understanding grace. We need to uh, contemplate grace, right? We need to, uh, and we we cannot spend enough time contemplating the cross, contemplating the gospel. We cannot spend enough time daily considering what God has done to purchase our salvation. Uh, we can't overdo it. Uh, I wish, you know, people have asked, why, why can't we celebrate communion every Sunday? I wish we could. The problem is the logistics of it in this place are, are difficult. But you know what? Uh, and, and this will kill some of your theology, and I'll probably get, you know, letters about this. But did you know that you can actually do communion on your own at home? Right? There's nothing in the Bible that says, like, reverends have to do it. Right? There's nothing that says you have to be ordained clergy to administer communion. Okay? That's a Catholic doctrine because they believe that it became the actual body and blood of Jesus, and it seemed like only experts should handle that. Right? The good news is we don't believe that because we believe Jesus fills our life in other ways, and it's a symbol. It's not his real body and blood, and therefore it's just a cracker. And you can give yourself a cracker. Right? Uh, it doesn't have to be a cracker. You could have like a steak. And like a big jug of like, you know, wine or grape juice with bubbles or something, right? And you can celebrate communion like they did back in the good old days in the Bible where it was a meal. You could do that, right? Uh, there's, there's countless other ways that you can be daily considering and remembering the cross. Right? We cannot spend enough time remembering the God of grace. Uh, Second thing, we need to learn how to live like family. Uh, Our primary relationship with God is as a father, right? We come to him first and foremost as a father. And I know he's sovereign God, he is Lord, he's master, he's creator of the universe. We relate to him in all those ways as well. But primarily God wants to relate to us as father to child. Jesus in in the Lord's Prayer begins the Lord's Prayer what? O sovereign, omnipotent, holy God who's transcendent and out there. No. He says, our Father. O Father who art in heaven. Our Father. Right? Um, some of us have difficulties identifying God as a Father because we've, we've been jilted by our own broken relationships with our own earthly fathers. I'm saying you've you got to get over that. You've got to get over that. You need to know God as a Father. Because you can never right re- relate to him until you relate to him as a child to a parent. Third thing, uh, know what you are worth, right? We are not worthy. Absolutely, we are not worthy. But our worth to God is not based on our worthiness. Uh, modern pop psychology tries to say that the problem in your life is you have bad self-esteem. Okay, does anybody else have bad self-esteem? 
don't raise your hand, right? Because then you'll just feel worse about yourself. It will kill your self-esteem. Okay, so you have bad self-esteem, and the cure is to make yourself like yourself more, right? And if you like yourself more, you'll be happy. Um, and stop putting yourself down. And, and one of their accusations of religion is religion is too much about putting yourself down. You need to stop that stuff, and even though it may not be true, you need to tell yourself things you like about yourself. And eventually you'll believe it, and you'll be happy. Um, does it work? Well, to a level, it can work. And you can lie to yourself and you can convince yourself that you're not as screwed up as you think you are. And you can build up your self-esteem. But you know what that produces? Does it produce happy people? No. It produces bullies. Right? In fact, they've done studies on children. Playground bullies have huge self-esteem. Right? They like themselves. Right? Right? They like themselves too much. And it turns them into bullies. Okay, that's the Pharisees. Pharisees have great self-esteem. The elder brother has great self-esteem. He's a bully. He's mean. He is cruel. He is not loving. He is not happy. The Bible turns it upside down. It says, no, true worth comes by, yes, recognizing that you are unworthy, but that that has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with it. Your worth is based on God's love for you, who gave his son, gave his his if you will, his biological son, his only begotten son, sacrificed him because you were worth it right, to purchase your salvation. Last, last of all, um, we need to learn to share in the joy of heaven. Uh, this is the one that's hardest for me to explain, uh, but let me give this shot at it. Um, we are called by God to worship him, to glorify him, and to, as uh, the great creed says, enjoy him forever. Uh, What does that mean? Let me read just a little bit out of Psalm 68. It says, God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee. As smoke is driven away, so shall God drive away his enemies before him. So this picture of God conquering Israel's enemies, driving them away, right? And as that happens, the Israelites who are the righteous, what do they do? It says, well, the righteous Israelites, they shall be glad. Why are they glad? Well, because God just beat up their enemies, right? Uh, They shall exult before God. What is exulting? Not exalting, exult, E-X-U-L-T. Well, exulting means to celebrate a great victory, right? To celebrate that God drove away my enemies. And they shall be jubilant with joy, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. That psalm describes exactly what Jesus is trying to teach in this parable. We need to share in the joy of heaven. We need to learn what it means to exult in God. Well, why do we rejoice? Where does joy come from? Well, essentially, we exult in something when, when there's a good ending. When there's a lost person who's found. When there is somebody who's about to die who is rescued and saved. When there is an army that's about to defeat us and we conquer them. Right? When, uh, uh, when there is victory. Right? When there is victory. When there's that kind of good ending, what do we do? Well, we, we, res- we exult. Uh, one last sports illustration to close. 
Back in the day, a long time ago, I coached middle school girls, middle school girls basketball, right? Uh, seventh, eighth grade girls basketball. And most of the time, when you coach girls basketball, the score actually looks a lot more like a soccer score, <laughs> right? Uh, which is not glorious, right? It's like, yes, we got two baskets. Hallelujah, right? And I remember, I still remember to this day, one of our most successful games, right? And, you know, not a, lot, not a lot of us invested in seventh grade girls basketball, okay? They don't rent huge stadiums, okay? They don't pay coaches huge amounts of money, right? It's pretty low scale. A few parents might show up, right? But this is one of the most happy days of my coaching career, seventh grade girls, eighth grade girls. And uh, the game was tied. Uh, well, it wasn't tied. It was, it was nine to ten, Huge score, right? Huge score. And we had about seven seconds left in the game, and I called the timeout, and we were behind by one point, right? Now, girls, one of the reasons they score really low is because just catching the ball at that stage of life is, 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 is a lot, right? And actually throwing the ball up and actually getting to go through the hoop is, is mostly miraculous, right? <laughs> and and uh, at least maybe it was just the kids I had. I'm sure there's others who are way better, but for me... <laughs> It was, it, was, it was tough, right? So the odds of pulling off a play with like seven seconds left and actually getting a basket, um, I have a better shot of winning the Powerball lottery. Um, but I called the kids timeout, and I, I actually gave them a play, like where they actually had to make a pass to a specific person, and everybody on the team had to like jobs to do, and I wrote it up all on my whiteboard, and I said, they'll, they'll never get this, right? They'll never, because they, they, they've never got this, ever, right? To them, it's all just like, a lot of scribbles. So uh, they all line up in their spots, and, uh, you know, and, and the whistle blows, and they executed this play perfectly. I mean, perfectly. And the girl got the ball right below the basket, and she wings it up in the air, and it goes through the hoop. <laughs> Unbelievable. And just then the buzzer goes off, and the score says 11 to 10. And I just can't believe it. And these girls were so excited. And I was crying. And... <laughs> And uh, it, was, it was just, and, and it was an exultant moment, right? It was exultant. I'm telling you, no Super Bowl was ever this, this glorious, right? Um, and it's fun to win. But even funner than winning was being able to share that with those kids and with their parents, right? To rejoice together. And when you, when you, when you make a win that's that impossible and that long shot, you... You tell people about it. And I went home and I would tell people, you should have seen what my seventh grade girls did. It was, it was so beautiful. And I couldn't help but tell people because I was so excited and I was rejoicing and I was exulting. And uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says that there's something about sharing something we celebrate with others that completes it. Right? It completes it. It makes it fuller and better. Who wants to celebrate those kind of things alone? Right? When you've experienced a tr- moment of triumph, whatever it is, don't you want to share it? C.S. Lewis says it, it, it completes it when we invite others to share it with us. Right? It fills it out. It makes it really bigger and more than what it ever was. That, that really is what is at the heart of praise and worship. Right? We are praising something that is extraordinary in the being and character and work of God. Right? Uh, God himself is, is exalting 
in his saving work of grace as a father, of reaching out and bringing lost people home. It celebrates his heart. And he wants to share it. And he wants to share it with his family and his friends. He invites us to enter into his joy in seeing his mission accomplished and seeing the good endings that come through his redemptive work. Uh, We need to learn how to do this better. C.S. Lewis also says that because God is infinitely big, his plan is infinitely beautiful, and our language is so inadequate, it's why praise is so hard. He uses the analogy of uh, orchestra warming up for a concert. He says some people might find that uh, entertaining, but mostly it's just a lot of noise. He says our worship is kind of like that. It's trying, <laughs> right? It's trying to put into words the glory and splendor of what God has done. But it just doesn't quite get there, right? Because we don't have the words and capacity yet. But he says there's hope because the orchestra is tuning and gearing up for a great concert. Uh, someday, our feeble attempts will come to fruition when we come before God in glory. And we can really proclaim and join in and exult in what God has done. But in the meantime, we practice, right? We try. That's what we want to do now. We want to call the worship team to come. We want to exalt in what God has done. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.